Hello everyone, this is Edu Italia and welcome to the very first episode of 1.5. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. I can't wait to see what we learn. For this inaugural episode, we will be talking to a very special guest. Our first guest indeed will be the Right Honourable Gentleman Charles Hendry, former Minister of State for Energy and Climate Change for the United Kingdom. Throughout his extensive experience in the public and private sectors, Charles has worked with states, governments and corporations to lead change in our energy systems. And recently in 2019, Charles was appointed Commander of the British Empire for services to the UK trade and investment. A true expert at his craft, Charles will certainly offer a unique perspective. So let's get right into it and welcome to the first episode of 1.5. Hello Charles, how are you? Thank you for, for joining the, the first episode. How, how is everything? Yeah, Edo, all is good. Thank you for giving me the privilege of being your first guest on 1.5. No, thank you. It's a real honor to have you and to, to learn a little bit more about your background. I, I think it's a great way to start to, to really dive into something that is a topic that is, of course, growingly important for all of us. But to see it from a perspective of yours, having, having been an energy minister in the UK, you must have such a unique perspective. So perhaps before we dive into that, could you tell us a little bit more about, I guess, your background and how you came to have the position you held? So I, I've had an interest in energy for the best part of 40 years. Uh, the, uh, the first power plant I looked at was a huge power station in Scotland called Longanit, which I went to 38 years ago. And I was reminded of that just the other day because they're now knocking it down. When I went to see it, it was quite a new power station. It was a coal power station, and now it's being demolished. And so that brought home to me just how long uh, I've been involved in this. And uh, I was then worked with some energy clients on the communication side uh, before I went into Parliament. I was elected to Parliament in 1992. But my main focus on energy came after the 2005 election. Uh, David Cameron appointed me to be Shadow Minister for Energy, which is this strange concept we have in the United Kingdom where you shadow the government minister, you learn the brief, and then if your party gets into government, then you can uh, potentially take over that. And so then when we came into government in 2010, he asked me to continue as uh, Minister for Energy and Climate Change in the relatively new government department, which brought together both the energy issues and also the climate change issues to try and take a much more holistic approach to, to the challenges which we were facing. Just, just to clarify, like what exactly does the Minister for Energy and Climate Change do? So, so my responsibility was the whole of the large-scale energy side. So it was the oil and gas industry, it was nuclear, it was the offshore wind industry, which was just beginning. And I think one of the great successes for the UK has been the offshore wind industry. It also was some of our strategic relationships with some of the major energy partners, the countries in the Middle East, with Norway, uh, with Central Asia, and uh, with Russia. And so a, a broad range of issues. But it, I think what was really critical, looking back now, was it was really about the first time that we had tried to bring together the energy issues and the climate change issues. And we knew we had massive targets to meet. Uh, these were European targets under the Renewable Energy Directive, and where we had to remove the proportion of UK electricity from 5% to 30% in a decade. And that meant a complete rethink of the way in which we had ran energy policy, uh, looking again at the whole way in which we encourage investment to come into the UK, looking at where our natural resources were going to be strongest, 
Uh, we had a very strong team within the department, but it also meant working closely with the European Commission, with other governments, because at the end of the day, we all recognise that this is an international issue. We have to cooperate, we have to work together if we're really going to make the progress which we do need to make. And I think the proof of that is the extraordinary progress which has been made over the course of the last decade. Perfect. I, I think actually that, that hits the nail on the head on exactly what I was going to ask you, ask you next, which is we have a problem that is in a way uniting us all, but at the same time there's, an, there's, an, there's a situation where we can also be increasingly divided, especially on the political aspect. You know, we have the UK, which has now formally left the European Union, but at the same time, you know, leaders are envisioning a world where even we have a central, like a, a total energy grid that connects cr- cross countries. So how, in the future, how do these relations have to evolve and what is it like for different countries to work together to, to push forward renewable energy projects? What does that interaction entail? What it means is we've got to share evidence. We've got to make sure we under- have the same direction of travel. And that is broadly in place. So even though the UK has left the European Union, we still need to cooperate, and we will do, with our European partners and with the new Biden administration in the United States, then this really transforms the ability of the world to address these issues. Uh, We have the climate change talks in Glasgow, COP26, uh, this coming November, and that's going to be really critical. And with President Biden, we hope participating personally, but a very strong message from uh, Mr. Kerry as uh, leading his negotiations. The rest of the world is now going to have to step up to the plate and to get more engaged in this. And what we need to have is a, a more of a global approach to setting policies and where we all look at how we harness our strongest resources. And then we use interconnection to take that renewable power to where they're going to be needed. The scale of this challenge is so great that we we need to optimize the investment and to make sure that we're putting that investment where the resource is strongest. So from the UK's perspective, our renewable energy of choice is going to be offshore wind. We've already, we're the world leader in terms of the amount of offshore wind which is there. But what I think we'll then see happening on the back of this is how you build a more connected system across northern Europe. So the North Sea wind doesn't just come into the UK market, but it can go into Germany or Scandinavia. Uh, Sometimes it will be where they need the electricity. Sometimes it stops them using their own resources uh, when they will be able to do this in a much more joined up and cohesive manner. And the world is thinking increasingly in similar ways. And when I say the world, I mean that every country is looking at how it addresses this more. And even the major hydrocarbon economy, some of the ones I used to meet uh, to visit in Central Asia uh, as minister, they are also looking at how they uh, harness their own renewable resources because what they recognize is that they, the world is now going through that process of change. This is absolutely fundamental. It is a new industrial revolution. And if you're not up there helping to lead it, then you're going to be left behind. I wanted to elaborate a little bit more on what you mentioned with the hydrocarbon-based economies. So we had... I guess for the better part of half a century, we've had sort of geopolitics and foreign policy shaped in a way also by oil and our ability to capture oil and then to commercialize it. Incidentally, some countries, some of the countries that have vast oil resources also have vast oil, vast resources of, of sunlight, and this could also be used. So I guess to, to make it brief, like, do you think we could have conflicts arising from the fact that people have more access to sunlight and they can use that as a re- resource energy? 
I think you, you raise a really critical issue, Edo, because that historically energy has meant power, and I mean political power. So when the UK was the first country to really harness coal in the Industrial Revolution, it became the most powerful country in the world, an enormous empire, uh, a great uh, manufacturing base. That w- If we then come forward to the 1970s, it was the Middle Eastern states following the quadrupling of the gas prices, so the oil prices, which delivered them an in- immense amount of wealth into their sovereign wealth funds and the power which came with that. And now with this energy revolution, we're going to see power shifted again. But what is fundamentally different this time is it's not just going to be moving between countries or moving between super large businesses. It's going to be moving to people, to households, to communities, to small businesses, to cooperatives. Because with the ability to generate our own power in a way that has never been possible before at scale, uh, we're now going to see that power transferring from the governments and the big businesses to the smaller communities and how they will then harness the resources they have locally. Now, I don't see that as a conflict. I think that's the most incredible and exciting opportunity. And this brings immense social change and social benefits alongside it. And I think if you look at a continent like Africa, uh, which in recent centuries has has been left behind, this really should be Africa's century. Because Africa has an immense ability to provide not just its own uh, energy and electricity needs, but those for many surrounding countries and areas as well. And so this is a a time of fundamental change, not just in terms of moving towards a cleaner society, but what that means in terms of the shift and the transfer of power as well. So would you say then that, I guess, countries that are currently developing or still need to experience the, the rapid industrial growth that West, most Western countries have experienced, do you think in a way this investment in renewable energy infrastructure or just alternative energy generation will sort of kickstart this economic growth? Well, is it a sort of catalyst for growth in the end? It's a catalyst for many different things. So yes, for economic growth. Um, but if you have, uh, we've got a best part of 2 billion people who don't have access to electricity on the planet at the moment. If they have the ability to have power, then it gives them refrigeration for keeping food. It gives them refrigeration for keeping medicine. It gives them the ability to keep hospitals functioning seven days a week, 24 hours a day. It gives them to educate children, the chance to educate children when when it's dark. It completely changes what they can aspire to do. And alongside that, of course, the economic growth, which comes because of the ability to produce things at scale, Uh, and therefore to determine their own futures in a way that often isn't possible at the moment. And I think if we look at a very different dimension of that, and if you look at some of the hydrocarbon-rich nations again, you look, for example, at Saudi Arabia, that for them, it's an economic process, which is also driving their move towards renewables, because they have a, a young population who are hungry for economic success. And if they are burning too much of their own oil, to generate electricity, then they're actually destroying the economic base on which those people are going to need to depend. And so by harnessing the sun, building nuclear power stations, hydro in northern Saudi Arabia, they will provide a lot of the electricity which they need for their own use, which maintains the oil available for exports. We're still going to need oil for a significant number of years to come. It will decline, of course. 
but then this is an economically driven process, which also delivers social benefits as well. On this note, we, we have seen that sort of some countries are investing considerably more. I mean, we look at China, I forget the numbers right now, but I remember looking at statistics when, when you look at sort of the the megawatts and gigawatts installed uh, per, per wind power and solar power. In some countries, it's significantly higher, and then some countries then invest in in, a, in international territory so that they, they can grow a certain infrastructure. Is this, do you think this is a model that will be seen by other countries? I.e., would you imagine, I mean, not to be too specific, but would you say, for example, the UK could invest in territories outside of the UK to sort of kickstart energy generation across, like, internationally? So instead of oil drilling some in a different territory, I guess, planting solar panels in that territory. I, I think this absolutely will be a part of our foreign policy. And so we've already said that we will not be using UK government finance to support uh, new investment in coal, for example, uh, and we, but we will use it to support investment in renewables. If you look at the American scheme of Power Africa, of using American aid to put in place the power infrastructure, to enable Africa to deliver its own economic growth. And I talk of Africa as a continent, of course, it's a mass of different countries which will, will work in different ways. But this, I think, is one of the most effective ways of using the aid budgets of the wealthier nations. If you can deliver power to individual communities, then you give them all of those benefits of better healthcare, better education, economic prosperity, uh, which have uh, not, they've not been able to achieve to date in the at the rate which I think we would have wished them to do. On a little bit of a, of a side note, I guess, do you think the technologies we need to ensure this transition already exist or do they still need to be developed? Who do you think is sort of has the lead in this renewable energy race? So the first thing to say is that we are at an unprecedented time of invention and the resources which are going into cha- addressing the challenges which we face on climate change are unparalleled in history. Every university is looking at battery technology. They're looking at how you improve wind turbines. They're looking at how you improve solar panels. They're the wider issues of storage. So but it's not just the universities. It's also the large corporations. And what's changed fundamentally now is that it's the biggest companies in the world which are often leading this change. So they can greatly accelerate the process from what we have historically been used to. Uh, when I became a minister, our chief scientist said it typically takes 30 years from an invention to commercialization of a major new energy technology. Well, we've now reduced that by probably two-thirds. That offshore wind was a nascent technology 10 years ago. It's now a mature technology. Still, m- significant changes can still be made to make it yet more efficient. But nevertheless, it's, got, uh, it, it's a very different world from where we were a little while ago. And storage is going to be perhaps the holy grail of this. How do you make sure that when you've got abundant resources, you're not wasting the power which they produce? The work which is going into battery technology, that we're seeing the gigafactories which are being built. Um, and I think what we'll start to see is a, is a, diver- a, a, a separation of the approaches. We'll see for transportation that batteries will become the normal way of providing for electric vehicles. Um, we will also, the hydrogen may be used perhaps for the very large vehicles or for trains, but overwhelmingly for our cars, it'll be batteries rather than hydrogen. Um, but hydrogen will become 
uh, um, as the costs come down, the technology improves, will become the technology of choice for industrial purposes and some potentially for very large scale, scale storage. So where you have abundant amount of power being produced at a time when it can't be used, then can we use that for hydrogen? Can we put that into the grid network? Can we power our homes off hydrogen? All of these are the challenges of this decade. Uh, the UK government has set a goal that it will have a town operating on a hydrogen grid within 10 years. Uh, now, I think it'll happen faster than that. But these are the areas where the, so much academic work is going, so much investment is going, because that uh, we can't achieve the uh, security of supply which we need with renewables without the backup support of the batteries. In these domains, is there a particular technology that is exciting you? I see a lot of exciting battery technologies. I think we're going to have to see some greater concentration. They can't all succeed, and therefore we're going to have to encourage people to do more, to work together, to identify which ones have the best prospects so that we can roll those out and commercialize them more quickly. Uh, I think there's some very exciting technology on heat storage, which is uh, at a very uh, relatively early stage now, but that will be uh, transformative. I use the word transformative a lot, and it's a, but it really is going to be significant to the changes which that can, can make. Uh, and that I see just in terms of new approaches to power generation, that we're starting to see a great deal uh, in terms of improved turbines, how do you harness the tides and the sea, that, that this is so much invention which is happening at the moment. And that the challenge for investors is to identify which ones offer the best prospects of, of being able to succeed and being able to be commercialized. The issue is not a shortage of money. There is an enormous amount of money which is available for new low-carbon technologies. The challenge is helping those who are the investors to identify which are going to be the best ones to, to go for and to adopt. So. I guess there, there's then a need for more efficient capital allocation in this in this case. So really understanding what will work and, and having, I guess, a technical understanding of the technology. Is that is that where you're going? Yes, absolutely. Um, and so the, the role of the scientists in this is is crucial. The, the role of the scientists, not just in helping to develop the technology, but having people in the financial institutions who understand how things work. Uh, I still get sent a lot of ideas for people saying, look, I've solved this problem. I've got a great new technology. Uh, when I was a minister, I was lucky in our chief scientist, a brilliant man called Professor David Mackay, who I could pass these on to. And he would say to me, this one is promising. This one, I think, is unlikely. This one is physically impossible. And having somebody who could advise you as to whether these things can be as good as they might look on paper is one of the, the, the challenges which we all face, both in terms of policy, and it shouldn't at the end of the day be for government to pick the winners. That's for industry to decide which is the one. Uh, but what government has to do is to create the right environment where ideas can flourish, where innovation can really lead the way, and when there's a, where there is a good source of finance to help make it happen. And the finance is always keen to go at the later stage in the process but where the financial shortage is at the earlier stage in the process. And so the people who've got an idea, they've managed to get it peer-reviewed, they think it might work, but then they need to build a working model, uh, prototype. That's when they need the funding, and that's where they often still struggle. 
And I think that we still do need to put more funding, potentially government funding, into ensuring that people can get through that first stage and and then into where that there are these enormous amounts of money available to them. This is getting me a little bit excited. So let's perhaps focus a little bit on this. How how could the government, I guess, aid this? How how what type of schemes do you think have could work or have worked in the past for analogous situations with regards to I guess, incentivizing this uh, development of, of better technologies or just better business models to scale these these technologies? W- what is a formula that works, if it exists? I think there are different formulas which work. And so the government's role should not be to be overly prescriptive. But one can certainly use tax breaks. One can certainly use government grants when the, the, the organization, the business, the university has to find matching funding to support it. Often, though, I think it's the bureaucracy of the regime which slows things down and creates the problem, and that people have to fill in so many forms to get the government funding, and that they often sort of almost lose the will to live because they're spending days and days and days when they want to be developing the project, sort of ticking boxes and filling in paragraphs for the government. Um, and then if they're not successful, they don't get an enormous amount of feedback as to why they haven't been. And I think trying to streamline that process would be good. Uh, we've got the banks which can support that in the UK, development banks, infrastructure funds. We've obviously got those globally and continental wide in, in Europe too. And so it's, it's making those, I think, more agile, more responsive uh, and able to help to accelerate that process of development because we don't have time on our side. We have to, in the course of this decade, so fundamentally shift the way in which we operate our lives, the way we generate power, the way we travel, the way we communicate, the way we manufacture, the way we produce food. All of this has got to change in a significant way. And therefore, we need to harness all of the resources from government and the private sector and the investment community to deliver this in the best way that we can. And I think that urgency is understood. I think we're seeing that clearly from President Biden. We're seeing that from the British leadership of the COP26 discussions. We're seeing that in the EU. We're seeing it in China. China sees this as an industrial revolution where it can lead, whereas historically, China's what China has been doing has been developing other technologies, making them cheaper and selling them back to countries. Whereas now it's saying, okay, how do we actually pioneer this and develop the technologies and master the the new industrial revolution? So there is immense amount of goodwill, uh, but we just simply have to keep our foot on the accelerator to make the change happen as quickly as possible. This leads me actually to asking a question which which, which came to my mind when I was doing a little bit of research on the the Swansea Tidal Lagoon project at the beginning. And there was this desire to build this this tidal plant, effectively, which generates the electricity by the tides that come. And is a sort of fairly controlled and expected way of generating electricity. If, if, I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken, then the project was then cancelled. And I don't want to focus too much on the politics, but perhaps if you could give a little bit of a word about Sort of the factors that come into play when we have to develop something that is as big as what the tidal lagoon could have been. Technologies all have their own time, and technologies which might have been looked at ten years ago were too far ahead of their time, and therefore it wasn't right then. But it doesn't mean they're never right. And we will eventually harness the tides. I have not a shred of doubt that we will eventually do so, and in, particularly in the northern hemisphere 
the highest tidal reaches in the world are in Canada, in the United Kingdom, uh, and in a significant number of other countries as well. They've got very good tidal ranges. And that we will eventually harness it. And the question is, do we want to lead that revolution or do we simply want to follow it and adopt other people's technology? And what I was looking at, and I started as a skeptic and I became persuaded and I was asked to do this by the government to carry out a review on their behalf. And I thought, well, look, if we have been able to reduce the cost of offshore wind by two thirds in the course of a decade and to move it from an, a new technology to a mature technology, to move into floating technology, turbine so it can actually be adopted around the world. If the UK can be seen as the undisputed global leader of offshore wind, what are the other technologies where we have the natural resources, we have the skills and the capability to lead in the same way again? And it seems to me there's a few of them. It's carbon capture and storage. It's small modular reactors on the nuclear side. And it's tidal. And with Tidal, the challenge which we faced is that when you're building an industry like this, the first plant which you build has to be smaller because you have to see how it works, you have to understand the challenges, you'll learn a significant amount from that. But the real economies of scale come with much larger lagoons and where you capture a much more significant amount of water and therefore you get a good two-way flow when the tide's coming in and the tide's going out. And so my view was you couldn't move straight to a sort of five gigawatt plant. Uh, It was not investable. And therefore, you needed to start with a small one, which would show you what was possible. And then you would then naturally progress into larger ones. Uh, What the government then did was it said, well, look, this first one is too expensive. And it rather ignored the fact that costs could come down. But I think what that brought home to me is we need a, a different way of trying to finance these. Because we have a system in the UK called Contracts for Difference, which essentially is like a feed-in tariff which fluctuates. And so it guarantees the companies which have produced the power plants a certain amount of revenue guaranteed each year for a given number of years. That works very well if this is for a plant which will last for 30 years, like an offshore wind farm, for 50 years, like a nuclear plant. But it doesn't work if you're talking for a plant like a a, a tidal lagoon, which could work for 120 or 150 years, because you've either got to have a contract for difference for the best part of 100 years, which I don't think is viable, or you're trying to recoup the capital costs in the first 20, 30 years of the operating life, whereas in reality, it's probably going to be spread over a longer period. And the point I was making to the government is that when the capital costs have been recovered, from tidal lagoons, then you've got almost free electricity. And what a wonderful thing for us to bequeath to other generations, having made quite a few mistakes with regard to the planet and our future well-being. What a wonderful thing to bequeath. It would be a network of power systems uh, which will go on last, lasting for many, many decades into the future, and uh, which would then do that at almost zero cost of electricity. Uh, we have the capability of doing it. One day we will. I'm sorry the British government passed up on the opportunity to do it, but it's going to have to come back to it eventually, because otherwise people just look at the tides and they say, why don't we make use of that? How could, It's on our doorstep. It's on our beaches. Why are we not making better use of it? Uh, it's understandable why sort of in some aspects tidal energy could be could be harder to implement, but I really hope that you're, you're correct in your, in your prediction that 
it's going to it's going to come back. On that, I wanted to elaborate on, on two additional points. You mentioned so these three verticals would be the tidal energy, the carbon capture, and the nuclear. So let's spend like a few more minutes on these last two. You know, carbon capture in particular has been attracting a lot of interest in recent years, and nuclear as well. We have sort of sensitive topic. Yet it's a topic that has to be explored because it needs to be taken into account, at least as a potential solution in a temp in a temporary way. So we have these two pillars which you, you mentioned are necessary. How how do we deal with them? So well, let's separate the two out and let's start with carbon capture. That the UK, as with many other countries, has gone through a, a big change in its thinking on carbon capture. Uh, as a minister ten years ago, I was advocating the case for carbon capture. But our Treasury and Chancellor were very sceptical about whether it was either necessary or it could deliver. We're now in a situation where we recognize that the need for moving to a low-carbon society to net zero is much more urgent. Uh, that is, there's very strong political agreement that, that is the right thing that we should be doing. And therefore, we need to find a way of removing the carbon from our traditional coal or gas uh, power stations. Uh, we have no more coal power stations really in the UK. We've almost phased them out and we go most days without using coal power at all, which is a world leading change. And I'm really proud that we've done that. Um, but we'll be using gas for some significant amount of time. And many other countries, of course, are going to be using a lot of coal and some are still building coal plants. So we have to find a way of being able to capture the carbon and to either reuse it or to, to store it. Uh, the UK should be in a position to lead that because we have the people who've worked in very difficult offshore conditions in the North Sea and the oil and gas industry who are very familiar with those uh, situations where we know there are aquifers which can be used or depleted gas fields. And so that those will become an important part of taking this forward. Uh, we know it doesn't just relate to, to power plants, it relates to large industrial areas. And a lot of work now going on looking at Humber, and there's a Humber Net Zero and Zero Humber. There's two initiatives there in Teesside, in Scotland, as to how you can decarbonize an entire industrial cluster. And this will make, enable us to make really rapid change towards achieving the net zero uh, obligations. So we have the technology. We know what needs to be done. So far, it just hasn't been done at really large scale. And so what we need to be doing over these next few years is showing that that can be achieved. Uh, I think in retrospect, it was a shame that the UK pulled back when it did from carbon capture sort of eight years ago. Uh, I think had it not done so, then we would be in a position absolutely to lead the world. We've now got to play a bit of catch up. China's doing some remarkable work in this regard and so are some other countries. Uh, but we do have an ability, I think, to play a significant role. And it's an area where the world ought to be cooperating. The prize is so big and the achievement would be so substantial, then we really ought to be looking at how different governments work together to get the best possible outcome. On nuclear, uh, I think we see resistance in many places towards large-scale nuclear plants. There's less resistance towards the smaller modular reactors, uh, which could be used for powering a town or an industrial facility, and where the work going into that now, I think, will then be able to reassure people that this is a safe technology. Um, this is going to be, I think, part of the direction of travel for nuclear. 
In the UK, my view is that we may see one or two new large-scale nuclear plants built, but probably not much beyond that. And therefore, the government is right here to look at how you then take forward the uh, alternative modular reactors and the, uh, the small modular re reactors to get the best from those technologies. Uh, the UK was a global leader in nuclear. We aren't anymore. Um, and this is an area in which we can get back into that. Uh, around the world, we're seeing a lot of interest in this. It's got very strong applications in uh, many different countries. And it, it brings nuclear back into the table. Uh, I've been intrigued over the recent years that nuclear message has been to say, look, to the renewable sector, well, look, we're in this together. We are the solution. The renewable sector said, actually, we don't need the nuclear. We can get on and we can do it on our own. And the SMRs will provide the nuclear sector with a, a new approach for how it can be a really relevant part of that future. Because we will still need base power. We're going to be moving more to a system of electrification, of cars, of trains, of buses. Uh, we're going to be using, moving more to electric heating uh, in countries like the UK, where we've traditionally used gas. Um, all of those things have to change. So if we're going to be needing that much more new electricity, then we've got to find additional ways of generating clean electricity. And so th that's why I've sort of identified those technologies as ones where we should be putting a focus onto it because there'll be globally significant industries and one where the UK has a very significant contribution to make. It, it would certainly be interesting to see how, how, that, how that will shape up in the future. I, I think the idea of small modular reactors, I mean, I, I think it, it could be an interesting way to, to sort of go around the main, the main sensitive issue. So the last question, perhaps to close off, this uh, very insightful conversation. We, we've been looking at it from a very large scale and we're looking at it from a sort of bird's eye view of how systems and governments can, can interact and push forward to the sustainability. But let's narrow it down to like the household. What can a household do? You know, we, the, now we see a lot of, especially with the decentralization of just energy generation and the idea of demand frequent, like demand response services. What can a, what can a household do that can even in a small way push towards this more sustainable electricity generation, storage, and in general, just consumption? I think the first thing households should do is to work as a household to understand the challenge and what the changes they can realistically make will be. And so how far are they prepared to go in changing their eating habits? That uh, it's very People assume very often that if you eat more of a a vegetarian diet, then that will be beneficial for the climate because you haven't got so much use of cattle. Um, but if you're flying your asparagus in from Africa and you're flying your fruit in from the Caribbean or wherever, then you're actually having a very significantly higher carbon footprint than you're consuming homegrown food. So I think we need to make intelligent choices. And to do that, we need to have more information available to us we need to understand much more clearly what the carbon footprint is of the things which we're buying. We can look at the back of any product in a supermarket and we can see how many calories it is, how much fat, how much protein, but it doesn't tell us what the carbon miles on it are, what the carbon footprint is. So we need to have that clearly signified so that people can say with food, with equipment which they're buying, I'm going to make a conscious choice to do what I believe to be the right thing for the planet and I'm going to buy, thing, buy things which have a lower carbon footprint. That would change the behavior of the large 
supermarkets because if they knew that the public wanted locally sourced products, then that would actually drive them to support it more so. Uh, the other thing which we need to do is to make our homes more sustainable. Uh, we, we in the United Kingdom have not made anything like as much progress on this as we need to do. And the government starts off by saying, well, look, we will encourage you to do this. Make your homes more energy efficient because it's the right thing to do and you'll save money. And still people do some, but they don't do a huge amount. 50% of our homes don't have proper roof insulation even. You, then you move to a stage of encouragement and you say, well, okay, we will provide you with an incentive, either from government or from the energy companies, to insulate your homes, to put in better windows, to draft-proof it, and to make it so it is more sustainable. And still people do some, but they don't make enough progress. And I think the other element, therefore, which moves it away from the household, but is where government requires people to do things and says, look, if you're going to sell your home, you either need to have got it to this level of energy efficiency or you need to have left some funding for the people who take it over, which can only then be used on energy efficiency improvements. So if you can't afford to do it yourself, which we understand is a pressure, then you ensure that when the house changes ownership, then you have the work gets done at that point. And then we can make a really rapid improvement in it. So I think people and their engagement and their willingness to, to look at their behavior is a really critical part of this. But they have to have more information about what are the, the so they can make the choices they think are right for themselves and their families. And then we also have to recognize that in some areas, government will need to force change. To give an example of that, we, we used to have the old fashioned incandescent light bulbs which got were too hot to touch because so much of the energy was going in heat rather than light. When it was said that they were going to be phased out across Europe, and there were newspaper campaigns saying this is a terrible infringement of our civil liberties, go out now and fill your cupboards with old light bulbs. And I hope people didn't take any notice of that because through the compulsion of phasing them out, we ended up with much more energy-efficient light bulbs. We can light our homes in a much more affordable way, and we're not wasting energy in the way that we were. And so it's been a win-win for everybody. And the people who've got cupboards full of the old-fashioned light bulbs are paying much more than they ever need to for their electricity, for their lighting. So government has an active role to play in driving change. I prefer, as somebody who believes in markets and I believe in competition and freedom, I prefer that to be done in a way that encourages change. But we shouldn't shy away from where government has to go a step further uh, to drive change in the direction which is necessary. So those are, those are all my questions. Really, I think it has been a great discussion. I, again, I wanted to thank you, Charles, so much for your time. It's been a real, real honor and pleasure to have you as the as first as a first guest of uh, 1.5. Thank you, Edo. I've been delighted to be part of it. My final message is we should be really optimistic. The challenges which we face are immense and are potentially daunting. But the human genius which can be brought to bear to finding solutions, to driving change, is now more needed than ever. And I'm incredibly positive, and I'm particularly positive, about the approach of younger people. 
I think that the knowledge which which you have, the wisdom which you're accumulating already, the the passion and the enthusiasm for driving change is going to be transformative. So um, I, I thank you and your colleagues for everything which you do do and you will do to deliver a sustainable net zero world. Thank you. For episode one of 1.5, that was Charles Hendry, former Minister of State for Energy and Climate Change for the United Kingdom. I hope you had as much fun listening to this episode as I had interviewing Charles. It was great and it was a truly insightful conversation. If you want to remain in touch, feel free to check our Facebook and Instagram pages at 1.5pod or feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at edutalia1, that is edutalia and the number one. Thank you for listening to this first episode of 1.5 and I look forward to seeing you in the next episodes. Till then, ciao ciao!